was very struck actually just as uh, we were reading there by that prayer of Jesus Father I thank you that you have heard me I knew that you always hear me but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me and if the Lord Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever that would be his same prayer for us this evening wouldn't it that we might believe as we read, as we think as we listen he is indeed the Son of God who has been sent to us and for us as the resurrection and the life. His prayer would be that for us and that with that surely that we would see his glory. So let's just pray that, shall we? Lord our God, you are a speaking God. You're a great God. You are indeed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we would want to echo these prayers and concerns of yours at this original incident, this original event, all these years ago. Your prayers, your concerns have not changed. And we pray that our eyes might be opened, our hearts too, that we might believe in you as the one whom God has sent to us, the resurrection and the life, and we may see your glory together and trust you in all things. We ask this in your name. Amen. A long time ago, a man there called John Flavel wrote a book called The Mystery of Providence and uh, that would be I think a fairly good title for what I want to, to think about this evening as indeed would that hymn that we just sang and that's why we sang it God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform and you know if you know the author of that hymn William Cooper he wrote that he was a Christian he was a man who throughout his life was constantly plunged into deep Darkness and despair. And in fact, he wrote the hymn, those very words, the night before he was plunged into the deepest, darkest despair. It was almost as if he knew what was coming. Or again, if you want a biblical text, Proverbs 20 24, a man's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his way? And I hope we'll see something of all of these as we watch God the Father and the Lord Jesus here dealing uh, with his people, with his followers here, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus in particular. And I want you to see, if you have your Bible there, just see right from the beginning how John is very careful to establish the relationship, Jesus' relationship to the main characters in this story, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. Their love for him, their trust in him is established right at the beginning, isn't it? Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus was now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So Mary's love and devotion is immediately there, isn't it, to the Lord? It's not in question. 
neither is that of Martha here. But even more importantly and significantly, throughout this whole episode, and right at the beginning again, the Lord's love for these three is affirmed. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And Mary and Martha were well aware of it too. When they sent for Jesus to come to come to help and they hope to heal their brother Lazarus, you notice what they say to him? Not Lazarus, our brother is sick. Lord, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. I have a wee confession to make at the beginning of this sermon in that I heard uh, Eric Alexander preach on this chapter uh, a number of years ago at the Creef Fellowship, way back in the 1990s, and I never forget it actually. He just preached on the whole chapter so simply, so profoundly, so practically. He opened it up in such a way that it encouraged me to go back to Invergordon where I was at the time and uh, to preach it. He preached on the whole chapter. He set my mind on so many different directions that I managed to get four sermons out of it. Now I'm going to try not to give you four sermons in one here. But I suspect that many of the things that I say this evening are kind of echoes of some of the things at least that he said that day. And others too no doubt because that's where we all preachers, we all feed off and steal. We're magpies, you know, we, from all sorts of folks. So many other folk have fed into this. But one of the things he definitely said, and I thought this was worth sharing with you right at the beginning, one of the things he definitely said that day to encourage us is to notice that, that Martha and Mary, in effect here, come to Jesus in prayer, don't they, as they send this message to him. And do you notice the grounds on which they appeal to him? His love and their need. It's as simple as that, isn't it? It's just so simple, isn't it? The Lord, the one you love, is sick. That's the basis on which he appeals. His love and their need. And I remember he quoted this old hymn, O Saviour, I have not to plead in earth beneath or heaven above, but just mine own exceeding need and thine exceeding love. And that's all I need to plead with him. His love, my need. Don't need any other grounds for appealing to him. Just do that. His love, your need. And yet, although we have to say, that's what the story teaches, isn't it, that he may not always respond in quite the way we anticipate or desire. But again, just go back. That was a wee intersection, but um, insertion rather. But just go back and notice again how Jesus' love for these three is affirmed. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's there in verse 3, the one you love is sick. Verse 11, our friend Lazarus. And then later, as he wept at the grave of Lazarus, the Jews watching on comment, see how he loved him. That's what we need to know at the beginning. That's what we need to remember throughout this. Jesus loved 
Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Because it's that which raises the dilemma. If he loved these sisters, if Lazarus was the one he loved, why didn't he come immediately to heal him? And everyone is aware of that dilemma. Everyone is aware of that seeming contradiction. No more it would seem than the NIV translators here who have given us, if you heard, and if you've got it there, the NIV, verses 11, 5 and 6. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was more than two days. It's a puzzle. It's a perplexity. He loved them, and yet he delayed. Now, I don't want for a minute to deny there isn't a puzzle and a perplexity here. But from everything that I can gather, that translation in the NIV is the wrong translation. It's not, it shouldn't read, yet, when. It's not the best translation of the two little Greek words there, hos, un. And just so that you don't just take my word for this, the ESV has, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The American Standard Version, when therefore he heard that he was sick. The King James Version, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days. The New King James Version, so when he heard he was sick. The RSV, so when he heard. Young's literal translation, when therefore he heard. Now this is important. You, you see what is being said here. In other words, it was because of his love for them. Not in spite of his love for them that he delayed. And what therefore we see, it seems to me, in the rest of the story as it unfolds is where love leads. I want to put that in my title, you see. The mystery of providence, where love leads. Where the Lord Jesus, in his love, leads his people. So we need to look then, where does love lead? Where does the Lord, in his, lead, in his love, lead Martha and Mary here? Not to mention, of course, Lazarus. But it's the sisters we want to think about. Where does he lead them? Well, initially, it's into a bleak and black place, isn't it? A painful and a totally perplexing place. If you've ever loved somebody, if you have ever lost someone you loved, then you will know the agony, the heart breaking agony into which this two-day delay plunged Martha and Mary as Lazarus, their brother, whom they loved, who had been sick in Jesus' absence because he did not come immediately, died. 
And that's what happened, wasn't it? It was out of their love for Lazarus that they had sent for Jesus. It was out of their love for Jesus, their faith in his power to heal, his, their confidence in his love for them and Lazarus that they had pleaded with him to come in the first place. But he had not answered as they had wanted. He had not come. He had delayed. And I am sure that we are, in other words, he had led them into a place of agony. I mean, real agony. If you've lost somebody, you know the kind of agony that they were in. And I'm sure that we are meant to hear something of that agony, and probably also a measure of, of accusation in Martha's statement on Jesus' eventual arrival in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And a little later, Mary, through burning tears, says exactly the same thing. Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, just think, painful, perplexing agony. And yet, John's words in verse 5 are telling us that in his love, because he loved them, the Lord led them into that kind of agony. What kind of love does that? What kind of Lord does that? And of course the reason for thinking on this is that this is not an isolated incident, is it? This is not, in biblical terms, an isolated incident. Think of what Joseph went through in Egypt. Think of what I have been reading recently in my kind of daily readings in Job. It's good. I think, we should, I think you should read Job every year sometime, at some point. I mean, listen to Job. Listen to him. In chapter 3, for example, verse 20. Why is light given to those in misery and life, to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace. I have no quietness. I have no rest but only turmoil. What kind of God leads his child into that kind of agony and misery? Or later in chapter 30, Job says, God has cast me into the mire. I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride in it. You toss me about in the roar of a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruin stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Again, just particularly in that last little section, I'm not saying that Job's perception of God is right there, but you can hear his agony, can't you? 
And again, what kind of God would allow someone who belongs to him as Job does? Remember how he affirms him and affirms his love for him right at the beginning. Have you seen my servant Job? What kind of God, what kind of a love leads his servant, his son, his daughter into that kind of thing? Or again, as David said earlier, we, we've had a holiday club this week, you know, and um, primary four and five. I was called in <laughs> on Thursday because the children was great. They were asking some fantastic questions. It was kind of, well, they called it sort of not prime minister's question time, but minister's question time. And, and I got these questions, primary four and five. First up, why did God tell Abraham to kill his son? And that's a great question, isn't it? That's a great question. And just you go back to that episode, the agony again of Abraham making that journey to Mount Moriah. Leaving his servant and then climbing the hill alone with Isaac, knowing what was coming. Tying him to the altar, raising his hand with the knife and about to strike him. And you, if, if you have a little imagination, I have a son. <laughs> I have a son. There's no way in the world I could imagine what was going through Abram's mind at that point. The agony of that. And yet God had led him there into that agony. Is that what we're saying? Well, that's what the Bible says, isn't it? And of course, it's not just biblical examples here. Again, one of the reasons for wanting to think about this as, as, a, as a pastor, just, just as a Christian, but as a pastor too, is you, once you've been in the ministry for a little while, you... You see so many of the Lord's people in such agonizing situations. Bereavement, illness, relationship breakdown. So many of the Lord's people, not where they expected to be in their lives, in their ministries. Not where they would want to be. Not where they would choose to be. Agony. Do we really believe that the Lord in his love has led them there. Now again, you see, when you're thinking about this, the Bible is well aware of and gives proper place to and affirms indeed the realities and the responsibilities of Satan. For example, in the story of Job, of human sin, in other examples... But it also constantly teaches that working concurrently with and through and ultimately over these things in a way that we have to say is often beyond human understanding, God's sovereign hand works. And everything that we read of the detailed sovereignty of God and yet also of the love of God in Christ for his people, tells us that it is ultimately, in relation to his people, it is God who in his love leads his people into dark and agonizing places. 
as he, according to Romans 8.28, which is one of the crucial texts here, isn't it, works all things together for the good of his people. And certainly that's definitely what's going on here, isn't it? It is. It's what's going on here in verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus so. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was and plunged them initially into agony. Christ in his love led them into it. Can we not say that for every Christian? I think we can. I think we must, actually. You know that song of, I don't know if it's Stuart Townend on his own or is it Townend and Getty? Really makes me think, what love is this that purges fear and cancels every sin, yet loves enough to lead me through the fires of discipline, the suffering that works in me, the jewel of humility, everlasting love, everlasting love, everlasting love be my comfort and guide. What love is this that loves enough to lead me through the fires of discipline? And the fact that it is actually love, mysterious love, certainly. But love at the end of the day has actually been the comfort of many of God's people down through the ages. I, I've quoted it, our Logis folk know that these, verse, we, these words because I've quoted them a few times recently since discovering them. But because they're so precious in a way that... Words of Adoniram Judson, who suffered hugely as a pioneer missionary to Burma. He said this, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. Or Spurgeon, again, who knew so much about pain and suffering. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him. Nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. In many ways, you know, often you find yourself as a preacher preaching in, in a situation where you have not undergone the kind of trials and sufferings that folk out there and out elsewhere have suffered. And yet when I see this line and I think of this, here is where the love of Christ sometimes leads his people I need to think about that. I'm sure there'll come days when I need to think about that. But in some ways, actually, in the everyday disappointments, in the everyday frustrations, in the everyday hurts and heartaches, I need to remind myself, Christ in his love has led me here. 
I'm not here by accident. You must have reasons. I don't necessarily know those reasons. But he must have reasons. But before we think of reasons, particularly in this story, notice also that if Christ in his love has led them into this agony, Martha and Mary, Christ in his love was with them in their agony. That's so important. That's so important for us, isn't it? The Lord Jesus didn't lead Martha and Mary into this agony of loss and then leave them there, as it were, on their own. He came to them. Whatever the sovereignty of God and providence means, it's not detached and distant sovereignty. Jesus did lead Martha and Mary into this agony, and then he entered into their agony, not just, I mean, by being physically present, but emotionally. We get some strong statements here in this passage, don't we, about Jesus' emotions. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Or again, verse 34, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Or then again, 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. Now that's important, isn't it? Jesus wept. Even though he knew that Lazarus would die. And even though he knew that his delay would mean that Lazarus would die. He knew that that was going to be the outcome of his delay. It didn't surprise him. And when he arrived there, he didn't just pat Martha and Mary on the head and said, There, there, dry your tears, I'm here now. He wept with them. Even though, again, thinking not just that he knew what was going to happen, but then he knew what was coming next as well, didn't he? He knew what they didn't know. He knew where this would end. He knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but still, he wept with them. And that says something really important to us, particularly when you're still in the place of agony. The Lord Jesus never takes lightly our agony, our pain, our perplexity, our tears. He leads us into them. He never takes them lightly. In fact, there is a real sense, this suggests to me at least, that there's a real sense in which in all the agonies of his people, even though he has led them into them, He agonizes with his people. There's a sense in which his suffering are are ours and our sufferings are his. Feels their pain, weeps with those who weeps. And these are not crocodile tears. Christ in his love is with his people. In their agonies. 
into which he has led them, even though often, and this is often the case, isn't it, that he seems absent, doesn't he, sometimes? He feels absent. He seems unconcerned. But that's where faith must reach up and grasp hold of things like this. He's not. He's not. He's there with them, weeping with them. He's deeply moved in his spirit by the agonies, the sufferings of his people, even though in love he has led them there. And of course, ultimately too, and this is also what we need to hold on to, Christ in his love will lead his people through their agonies to glory. You see, what was love's goal? What was Christ's goal in leading Martha and Mary and Lazarus into this agony? Verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then verse 39, Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. I want to strengthen their faith. I want to show them my glory, your glory in me. Glory was always the destination. Agony was never the end. It was a stage on the way to glory. A necessary stage, apparently. But it was never the end. It was never the destination here. And again, we have to hold on to that when we're in a dark place, when we are in agony. Christ in his love has led me here. Christ in his mysterious wisdom and love may have me linger here for some time. But Christ will never leave me here in the sense, leave me alone. But equally, Christ will never finally leave me here. He will lead me out of it, through it, to glory. And what does it mean here by seeing the glory of God? Well, glory here is not about the praise that is God's due as much as his revelation of himself, his revealing of himself as he truly is. That's what is going on here, isn't it? Jesus leads Martha and Mary into this so that they may hear him, they may hear him say words that no human being, no other human being has ever uttered or ever heard. Words of ultimate and eternal hope. Imagine being the first person to hear these words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And imagine not only being the first to hear those words, 
But to see the sign that confirms the truth of those words, as Jesus reveals himself to them as having authority over death, as he calls out, Lazarus. And you get that wonderful line. The dead man, the dead man, or the man who had died, came out. Again, can you be there? Can you see that? A dead man coming out of a cave, still wrapped in the cloth in which he's been buried. And so at the end of this agonizing episode, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the disciples knew things about Jesus, the Lord Jesus, they had never known before. And presumably they could never have known otherwise. I wonder, I don't know, it made me wonder, I wonder if at some point in their lives one of them had prayed Moses' prayer. Remember Moses' prayer, Lord, show me your glory. Somebody prayed that somewhere, never thinking that God might take it seriously. Never thinking of the path to the answer to such a prayer. But that's what's being fulfilled here. The Lord is revealing his glory to his people as the conqueror of life, of death. And do you remember again Jesus' words a little later in John 17? This is eternal life. This is the eternal This is what life is about. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now if we get that, if we, if we see that, this is life, that we may know God, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. If that is so, then our greatest need and our greatest blessing in life is to know that God and to know his son Jesus Christ as he is, as he truly is, to see his glory as it were more and more. And therefore, in whatever way, and wherever he leads us, with a view to showing us that glory, is a blessing, isn't it? Ultimately. To see his glory in new ways. To say to him then, in the midst of agony, of darkness, of pain and perplexity, Lord, Lord, what is it? You want me to see of your glory here. And the truth is, and what one of the things that this story would teach us, I think, is that it would seem that trying and testing and agonizing paths and places seem to offer the best, some of the best vantage points in terms of glimpsing the glory of God and Jesus Christ, seeing him as he truly is. That's what Martha and Mary, I think, discovered here. And again, maybe you know these words of Spurgeon. 
He said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction, he says, is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. And if you think about that pattern then, love leads into agony. Love in Christ is present with us in our agony. Love in Christ leads us through our agony to glory. Why is that at work? Why, why, is it, why those principles in our lives? Why does it work that way? Well, think of the Lord Jesus himself. What did the Father say to him at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my Son, whom I love. He affirmed it twice, didn't he? This is my Son, whom I love. And where did the Father's love lead his Son? To the agony of Gethsemane. Where you remember he looked into the cup that he saw was coming as the sinner's substitute and where he was deeply distressed and troubled, where he sweated blood and said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Love led him to Gethsemane. Love led him through Gethsemane to the ultimate agony of Calvary, the ultimate blackness, the deepest, darkest despair of being the God-forsaken one, where he was left absolutely alone, in that darkness, in that despair. No heavenly love or presence there at that moment when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his father turns his face away as he has made sin for us. But all that so he could be led through that agony to the glory of resurrection and ascension and vindication and coronation and one day consummation. Glory which he would share with his people. Remember how Hebrews put it, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the way it was for Jesus. That was the pattern. And something of that pattern will be worked out in each and every one of his disciples' lives. But because of him, we can be sure Christ in his love will lead his people into agony. Christ in his love will always be present with his people in their agony. We will never be forsaken as he was forsaken. And because he rose, 
he will never ultimately leave his people in agony, but lead them through it to glory. You know, I was thinking at the Holy Club, you know that song, Jesus, you are here with me. Do you know, some of our children were singing it, singing it really loudly, and, and then sometimes you just think, what am I singing here? I will follow where you lead me. I will follow where you lead me. Well, you see something of where he will lead his people into dark places, difficult places, painful places, agonizing places, and yet ultimately to glory, to glory. Shall we pray together? You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.